Welcome to Ethereal Underground, Episode 6. I'm your host, TNT, and once again, I'm happy to have a good friend as our guest for Episode 6. His name is Robert, and as usual, we'll get to know a little bit about his background, whatever he feels comfortable letting you and I know, where and when he grew up, a little bit about his family, where he is today, what led him to this stage in his life, and just what his general views are, how life has changed for him and his observations. You know my background, I'm a research scientist. I specialize in field theory. I work with generation of ions, cold plasma, for example, hydrogen, oxygen ions, and water technologies, restructuring, energizing water. Well, let's get started with this exciting episode. And at this point, we'll let uh, Robert take over for a few minutes, give a general background of who and what he is, and uh, let's get into it. So Robert, welcome to the show, and we'll let you take it uh, for your introduction, and then we'll go from there. Fantastic. Well, thank you so much. Well, first and foremost, I just wanted to, to thank you for inviting me to be on the show. It's a real honor to uh, be able to, to speak with you uh, and to be invited to the show. Um, yeah, a bit of a background about myself. I was originally born in, in Washington, D.C. Um, my dad was a, a research person and a statistician. Uh, there, my mother uh, was a, a microbiologist. Um, we moved to uh, San Diego area when I was uh, five years old. Um, <clears throat> and so I, I mainly grew up in San Diego. Um, my uh, uh, parents got divorced when I was uh, about five and my dad ended up moving to, to different places, but my sister and I mainly were in San Diego. Uh, we did uh, spend some time with uh, my father in California uh, Columbus, Ohio, and finally Virginia. So, you know, as we were growing up, we ended up uh, moving around quite a bit. I ended up going to th three different high schools, including two in California and, and one in Ohio. So it's, um, you know, one of the things about moving is that you tend to uh, become quite adaptable, but you tend to um, not have as many long-term friends because of so much, uh, so much moving around. Um, I did study uh, electrical engineering in San Diego. Uh, which they, they claim it's a four-year course, but it, it, I think most people end up uh, completing it in five. Um, and an interesting stat from the university was that uh, on average, I think they have about 400 people in the incoming electrical engineering class, but only 100 graduate each year. So there's a 75% uh, dropout rate for engineering school. I get a lot of people uh, that end up studying engineering, they, they call it pre-business within the school because so many um, end up starting in engineering and, and switching to business. Um, so I had a, a, a pretty good uh, a time in university uh, in San Diego. I had an interesting thing happen at one point. Um, I, uh, I used to have a, a Toyota pickup truck with a camper shell on the back and uh, it ended up getting stolen um, and I, I got a check for the insurance company that was actually more than what I paid for the truck. So I, I thought at that time um, whether to, to buy another vehicle or to uh, use the money to travel around Europe. So <laughs> I ended up uh, uh, taking, I think it was about $4,000 or so, uh, and used it to pay for a 10-week backpacking trip through Europe, um, which I, I think was um, 
the experience in my uh, university time, which really opened my my eyes up to to travel. Um, I ended up going to uh, 15 different countries, uh, you know, over the 10 week period. Um, I followed a book called Europe Through the Back Door by Rick Steves, which is really interesting because it, it it takes you through some of the um, the small towns as well as the the big cities and kind of says, you know, if, if you're going to be doing a 30 day trip, this is what you should do. If you're going to do a 60 day trip, this is what you should do. So it's, I found those guidebooks to be to be very invaluable. Uh, but I got the travel bug at that point. I uh, ended up um, meeting a, an economics professor on a park bench in Budapest. Um, and he was from uh, University of Phoenix in, in Arizona. And he had mentioned that uh, that as far as having an interesting career and um, career growth, he said that the the past century was um, or that well the, the past several decades rather um, was the time for for the United States and for Europe. And he said moving forward, it's it's likely going to be uh, Japan and China. So that that kind of planted the seed for the possibility to to move. Um, when I finished my uh, uh, electrical engineering uh, bachelor's degree in San Diego, that, um, in the U.S., we're going through a bit of an economic slump at the time. So an opportunity came to uh, study a master's degree at a brand new university that had been set up in Hong Kong. Um, so I, I was introduced to this by the uh, by a professor that we knew. In, in San Diego, and he kind of made the connections, and I ended up uh, moving to Hong Kong, um, and I uh, studied Chinese for uh, uh, several months, and also worked on a master's of philosophy in electrical engineering as well. Um, so it was that was really the, the the push that got me out to Asia. So I've, I, I think it's from a personality type, I've always been um, adventure seeking, and sort of from a background perspective, it's been. Um, uh, sort of non-traditional. Um, my mother was um, involved with, um, you know, she was interested in macrobiotics, and she, at one point she built a, mac, a, a mushroom factory in our in our house in um, in San Diego. Um, but you know, she's kind of kind of way out there, if you will. My my dad was more uh, more, more traditional, um, in uh, sort of I would say a, a little bit less. Uh, or, or yeah, we'll just just call it <laughs> more more traditional. Uh, but yeah, I've I had a, definitely an interesting childhood and and um, have been able to um, use this to to travel. And I've, I've in, ended up uh, doing some quite interesting things. I'm about 50 years old, uh, you know. So I, I was born in 1970. Uh, so have have been around most of my or I, at this point, I've now uh, been in Asia, whether it be um, Hong Kong, uh, Tokyo, or in Singapore, as, as well as Philippines. I've, I've had most of my career here in Asia. So you you got your electrical engineering degree in uh, California, San Diego. You had that experience traveling in Europe because you used the insurance money from your Toyota that got stolen. You know what? It's funny when you said that, Robert, <laughs> your Toyota truck with the camper mm. that they swap. 
what do you bet that that Toyota and that camper are still in California with someone living in it right now? <laughs> it, it, that's a, that's a funny thought, but it, it, it definitely may be. So what's, what's interesting with that truck is it, it ended up being, um, being found apparently. So it was stolen from a, uh, it, it was like a Nordstrom uh, big shopping mall parking lot. Um, and they ended up finding it uh, about two weeks later, completely stripped of all of the parts and it was just basically the shell. So, I mean, it was obviously somebody, you know, a professional car thief that had taken it, stripped it off for parts and then, and then left the shell somewhere. Uh, but of course, San Diego is quite close to Mexico. So, um, and in the part of town that I was in, it's, it's uh, known for, for, you know, car thieves and things like this. This was probably, uh, I don't know, in the early, early nineties. Yeah. Yeah. That's a boy. If you if if you had that now, you know how expensive their collectors' items. Those older Toyota trucks. They oh, go absolutely. Free. They last forever. Yeah. <laughs> they've got they've got a a great uh, great reputation. At least I recall in the '90s, you know, Toyota was by by far the um, the the one to get if you're interested in reliability. Yeah, absolutely. They built that reputation on that. So you took yeah. the insurance money. Four thousand some odd dollars, whatever the amount was, but it was enough to do that backpacking trip in Europe, which sounds fantastic. You mentioned what was it, fifteen plus countries? Yeah, yeah, it was it was excellent. So I, I followed the I used this Rick Steves, um, Rick Steves yeah. through the back door book. Yeah, yeah, and it's 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 excellent. You know, it's uh, uh, because he, of course, he's. That, that's his area of expertise so he can yeah, come right. up with an itinerary so it's it's great as the traveler because you can you can base your itinerary off that um and then decide decide where to go it, it's interesting at one point uh, uh i met a, a a nice swedish girl in um in london and I, I at one point in my trip i, I had a choice do i go do, do i go north into scandinavia or do i go south into greece and and with the uh the, the nice uh, swedish girl that i met with blonde hair and whose surname was was loving l-o-v-i-n-g <laughs> i thought how can i miss this <laughs> so, so i decided to uh to, to go up into uh to scandinavia and do the north part so i haven't seen greece yet but uh that's something that could, could be on a, the agenda one day but um i feel very fortunate i mean you know looking looking at today 2022 uh i actually am very grateful that I was able to, to do as much travel at a time when it was uh, it, it was free and relatively safe, uh, you know, free, free in terms of, you know, minimal travel restrictions and things like that. It, it makes me how lucky, uh, feel very lucky that I, I was able to do travel as much as I did when I did. Yeah, I don't think those times are, are coming back. So that that was a probably a wise decision in your life to, mm. to gain that experience. And then you mentioned you met the uh, professor from Arizona, I believe. And yeah, he was influential by encouraging you not only to continue to travel, but he was very wise for him to discern that basically the days of Europe and the United States were probably over and the decades to come, all the action was going to be Asia, Japan, China. And he was 100% correct, wasn't he? Absolutely, absolutely. So you know that I, it was when I was in Europe that got me thinking about, uh, or well, I got the taste of travel. And of course, I was going around as a backpacker at that time. You know, staying in 
in in hostels and doing the URL thing that uh, uh, quite a few people do, you know, coming from the U.S. and other countries to to, to Europe because it, it's it was kind of set up for that at the time. But that was what, where I really got the the travel bug to uh, to go. And then uh, so when I left for Hong Kong, um, yeah. I left San Diego with just just a backpack, and my mother says, "Oh, this was a, a backpacking trip that you never came back from." <laughs> so that was almost 25 years ago now. Um, so I ended up by uh, sort of getting set up in, in in Hong Kong because that was where I ended up doing the university. Yeah, so I wanted to talk about that just briefly. You graduate from uh, the California University there in San Diego, mm-hmm. and you decide to continue, which I, th- I think is probably their version of a PhD in electrical engineering, maybe. It, it is, so, it's a, it, so there's two types, I, I didn't know this before, so just as an FYI, um, there's two types of, of master's degrees. Um, one is a, a teaching master's degree, which is the master's of science. And then the other is a research master's degree, which is the master's of philosophy. And for most people, they, they do the master's of philosophy and then if they want to have a career in teaching, then they would normally continue on for the, um, for the uh, 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 PhD. I was invited to do a PhD, but uh, I decided that I'd prefer to, to, to do more commercial things at that time. But you know, dur- during the time that I was in Hong Kong working on the research master's degree, I did end up uh, publishing uh, you know, two journal papers and three conference papers and kind of got a, a taste of what the academic life was like. So that, that was actually really interesting. And I'm, I'm appreciative of the opportunity to, to to see what it's like to be a an academic, at least for a you know a year or two. Right, and that school that you went to in Hong Kong, it was a brand new university. Were you like one of the first? I, yeah, I was in the second class. I mean, second. so it's been going now for for more than twenty years, and uh, in in fact, their, their business program is one of the top in Asia. Uh, but yeah, I was one of the. I think the, the, the second year that they that they were open. So of course, for the university, they were quite happy to have somebody from the the West come in because they there was as a new university that they were setting up. Uh, so I you know to a certain extent it it was a uh, it was a win win situation for for both myself as well as well as the university because the university could show other people that hey we we have uh, people that are coming here from uh, from from the United States and then for me I was able to get a, um, an experience of, of Asia. Uh, and, and of course they were paying me during the, the time that I was there, I was working as a research assistant. And, you know, so I, I managed to, um, to complete the master's program, basically debt-free just with the, the stipend that they were giving and things like that. So, I mean, it, it worked out well on both sides uh, for, for me in the university. So that's, uh, yeah, that's excellent to be able to, be debt free because you know today's statistics the United States the poor kids are lassoed with sixty eighty thousand dollars student debt somewhere around there is the average and then um, absolutely it's difficult for them to pay that off and then you have close to sixty percent graduating that are not able to get a job or start a career in their degree program. So they have a degree, they might have $60,000, $80,000 student loans to pay off, but they're working in a field that's not related to what they went to school for. And it's like, oh, 
you know, these, I feel for them. My kids are in college as well. And well, one just graduated Mm -hmm. is in the medical field and the the other ones uh, finished one degree and starting a second. So they're all basically done and student debt uh, is a concern. It's not as high as the national average. Mm -hmm. So that should help. I think, because I told both of them, I said, you know, if you can graduate and you have student debt, but if it can be around uh, what a car payment would be, like say a Toyota Camry or a Honda mm-hmm. Accord, that's that's good. So a car, I, I could be way off, Robert, you might know, but in the United States, maybe a, a, a well-equipped equipped Toyota Camry or Honda Accord might be $39,000, 38000 Mm-hmm. And uh, they were able to do that. So I said, "Look, look at it this way: it's you're you're getting out of college, and your student loan is basically a Toyota Camry car payment. That's not that bad." But yeah, when you when you left, when you graduated with that new university, sounds really exciting and fantastic there in Hong Kong. What did you do after that master's degree? You stayed in Asia, correct? Yeah, so after doing or after completing the master's degree, I ended up uh, working in something called Cyberspace Center um, at the university, and that was a a government funded program to help Hong Kong companies improve their competitiveness by making effective use of the Internet. And the specific area that I worked on, uh, there were two parts. One was uh, e-commerce, you know, setting up systems where people can uh, can do business on uh, online, essentially the online stores and things like that. Uh, but my main area of focus was internet security. So I did that for uh, about a year. I wrote an internet security handbook to uh, help companies that that needed to know the basics of internet security if they're considering going online. Um, and at that point, I was uh, uh, I, I had a, applied to work as a, a manager in one of the big four accounting firms. Um, basically looking after their information systems risk management practice. Um, so it's, it was, um, at that time, it was mainly doing um, some audit support work. So for example, if they're, they're doing a financial audit and they need assurance over the, the numbers that are produced by, uh, say, their accounting system, um, they, they would need to know that there are automated controls in place. So you know, we would do some some testing around the security controls and, and make sure that they can rely on the numbers that that produces. So that's basically the audit support related work. Um, we also have the uh, security consulting practice. So you know companies that need to, to set up their security policies and standards, um, that they, they want to do penetration testing, uh, that they need to, um, to do uh, you know, incident response and uh, the incident management and things like that. So there's a there's a, a lot of consulting work associated with making sure that uh, companies' data and, and systems are secure. So I ended up um, working for one of the big four uh, accounting firms doing that, and I was there for about eight years. So it was quite a quite a long uh, a long period. Um, during that time, we also focused on on privacy quite a bit. We did some privacy impact assessments for um, the. A, a new uh, smart card based ID card that they had set out, uh, basically like, like a government ID. Um, in particular, they were concerned that, that people would be worried about what personal data is stored on the cards and how those would, those would be used. But um, during the time uh, that I was there, I ended up working on 
over 50 different consulting engagements for about 40 different companies. It's a you know, quite broad experience, but of course, you have the breadth of experience, but you don't necessarily have the depth because you're not not, not working at a specific company. So, and it, it tends to be a, a lot of short engagements, which is the nature of consulting type work. Well, too bad uh, you didn't work for Sony back in November 24th, <laughs> 2014. Remember when Sony got hacked? Absolutely. The, uh, Absolutely. Yeah. Dodge, the, uh, dodge that bullet. Yeah. <laughs> so you've been in this, uh, you're, you're probably, a, that's at a level of, that's a very advanced level of IT because it's, it's IT security and a lot of engineering and analytics. That's not a, that's not an easy profession to be in. I, there wouldn't be, I would, I wouldn't say necessarily competition, but to have your skill set, you would be probably a very viable character even to this day because of, of cybersecurity and with all the hacks and the vulnerability that we hear so much about globally. I, absolutely. You know, the, um, I, I'm actually very grateful for it's It's interesting the way that the career has, has gone because it was the engineering and then it was cyber space center sort of internet in general. And then I focused on security and then, you know, just because of the fact that I focused on security, I was able to enter uh, this firm at a, at a manager level and, and just a, a manager level is normally somebody with say four or five years of experience, but I was able to go in mainly because of that technical knowledge that I had built on the, in the internet security space. Um, and at the time that I had joined the, um, the, uh, financial industry regulator in Hong Kong had come up with some new internet security guidelines, uh, that the banks were expected to follow. And one of the requirements was that they needed to appoint an external consultant to come in to uh, uh, do internet banking security reviews. So I did uh, the, the first internet banking security review in Hong Kong, I think it was for Bank of America actually. Um, and then several other banks that had launched, or as they were launching their internet um, uh, banking platforms, they needed to have somebody come in and do reviews of that. So I was fortunate to have caught that wave. And you know, when I look back, I, the, the fact that I happen to have gotten into internet security early, I, I think that has been a huge benefit to my career. And it's been a, a, a fantastic, um, uh, you know, it's, it's because I happen to have gotten lucky and caught that wave right at the beginning, it's, it's, it's ended up uh, uh, being a field that's continued to grow and continued uh, job prospects. And, uh, you know, it's led to all sorts of interesting, uh, interesting situations. You know, I was while I was at the Cyberspace Center, um, I decided to uh, um, do a certification, which is called CISSP, Certified Information System Security Professional. It was being launched in the U.S. Um, and they um, mainly focused on on general information security principles. Um, and I ended up flying to Washington D.C specifically to take this exam. And it was interesting because um, at the time I, I could see the list of people that had the CISSP designation and uh, you know where they were from. Um, and I was the third person in Hong Kong to have ever gotten this designation. So, I, and, and you know, by now there are tens of thousands of people that, that all have this designation. You know, so th that is indicative of how early I was uh, 
and this was, by the way, before they ever had a, a study guide for it. So nowadays, of course, you can you can buy these thick books that say CISSP study guide. But at this time, it was a, a list of like 100 different references for how to prepare for this exam. But uh, I'm always on the lookout for, for new trends that would be um, uh, taking place for you know, of, of, of other areas to get into. I, I know that there are a lot, you're quite familiar with a lot of those as well, Tim. Yeah, I, uh, to the listening audience, I view Robert as the James Bond 007 of internet and cybersecurity. <laughs> <laughs> that's very flattering, thank you. Yep, the, he's the uh, 007. And that's, everything is, that's where it's at. I mean, if you, you talk yeah. about, uh, either luck was your way or uh, the strategy, but as far as making the right decisions of the career, the, the wave of this type of knowledge, you couldn't have hit the timing any better based on your experiences and the schools that you went to and then the certifications that you got. I mean, you were at the right place at the right time and not too many of us are able to, to do that. And I think it's, it's, you've been very fortunate and your type of skill set is still in need. It's probably higher than ever at this point in history. Don't, don't you think? Yeah, absolutely. You know, I, I think that there's a new regulatory component uh, coming in place here. So I think the, the problem with internet security is that, um, it's a huge responsibility because it is, has to do with protecting a company's data and protecting its business. And I, and I think normally the people that are making the business decisions are not the ones that are, that are involved in that world of information protection. So, you know, there's regulatory pressure now being placed on, um, on boards to get people that are familiar with internet security and are making decisions actually on the board. Uh, you know, so for people that are that, that have expertise in that area, um, you know, it's a huge responsibility to to uh, because the, over time there's been a, a much more that needs to be done now than than uh, used to in the internet security space because um, the the there's a lot more connectivity now than there used to, whether it be with uh, with mobile devices or with uh, uh, you know internet or interconnectivity between uh, different applications, and then of course the move to cloud and uh, all of this. It's as the technology changes, the risk profile changes, and and the the difficulty to protect systems uh, change as well. So there's a, a big trend now going on with uh, um, with with outsourcing certain aspects of security uh, and um, you know automating as as much as as much as you can. Yeah, because you, you could have a. In today's world, you could have a brilliant 14-year-old kid in Romania and bring down a Fortune 100 company. Absolutely. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Yeah, that's, uh, that's very true. So, so your, your career's been in, in Asia, and you've had high-level high experience. Banking, as you mentioned, this, this is very serious high-level consulting work and employment that you've had. Did you ever uh, get married? Are you mar married now? Uh, have any children? And uh, what, what are you uh, currently? Yeah, so 
yes, I got I got married in in Hong Kong. Uh, my wife was uh, uh, a British passport holder, but her her mother was uh, from Hong Kong, and her dad was uh, uh, was British. I think I, I think I managed. So I was it was quite funny because I was studying Chinese at the time, and I ended up getting married to the uh, probably the one person in Hong Kong that is that looks Chinese, but doesn't speak a word of Chinese. <laughs> so I don't know how I, how I managed to find that, but that's, uh, that's, that's my luck. But yeah, that, that uh, we, so we had one, uh, one child who is now 25 um, and, and living in London, but uh, uh, unfortunately that marriage didn't work out. Uh, I was single for about uh, eight years or so. And then I, I got remarried uh, about eight years ago uh, to my current wife, who's uh, who's from Philippines, and she's uh, given me three children, uh, ages um, ages five and two and six months. So um, I'm a happy man now, very busy with uh, with, with children, and um, currently based in the Philippines, where my, my wife is from. Okay, and then you, uh, prior to the Philippines, you had spent time in Singapore. Absolutely. So my career has taken me, uh, you know, I was, I was in Hong Kong for almost 14 years. Uh, I worked in Japan for a year uh, with, uh, I was with Lehman Brothers at the time uh, in Japan. Uh, and then I ended up coming back to Hong Kong. Uh, this, this was during, during the divorce and then ended up uh, going to Singapore. Uh, and I was in Singapore for over 10 years um, and have recently moved to the Philippines. Now, do you have this? I don't know. This might not be a fair question, but just in in general, do you have a favorite area of Asia that comes to mind that that you lived, or maybe the the culture or the food? Do you have any particular? I, to, to be quite honest, uh, w- one of my favorite places, it was, uh, in fact, Vietnam. Uh, the great thing about Vietnam is that you've got a, a mix of old and new. Um, you also have, you can get almost any food that you like there. Uh, and the, the, the quality is, is just amazing. So I, I don't know what it is about <laughs> Vietnam specifically. And, and just to let you know, I, so I used to uh, for, for jumping back to the career thing. So I, I worked um, for uh, a big four accounting firm for about eight years. I then was in Japan for a year, came back uh, and then worked for uh, an investment bank um, in a, a technology risk role and then moved to uh, an insurance company where I was also uh, Asia head of technology risk. And in that role, uh, I ended up uh, traveling to 12 different countries twice every year. And I was in that role for four years. So it was about roughly 30 trips a year that I was doing, you know, so a whole lot of travel during that time um, to the 12 locations that they had offices within Asia. So I, I kind of got to know several locations, uh, you know, in Indonesia, Manila, um, Ho Chi Minh, uh, Hanoi, uh, Jakarta, uh, of course, uh, Hong Kong, Singapore. So I've, I've been around uh, Bangkok as well. I've got, so I've gotten to know Asia quite well, but yeah, I mean, I, I think um, uh, as far as the, the, the food and things, I, I, I find Vietnam to be the most, uh, the most interesting. 
So I, I take it by now the backpack is nothing but threads. <laughs> fortunately i've upgraded my backpack since then but i, I think the uh, the thing that's holding me back now is the children yeah so i i've uh, uh not traveling nearly as much you know it's it's funny because when, when these lockdowns happened uh i i realized how uh how, how or i feel very fortunate to have been able to travel as much as i did when i did and then I, I can't think of a better situation. If you're going to have a lockdown, then that's a good time to, to be with your wife and to use things at home anyway. So, you know, the, the, honestly, the lockdowns have not, or any inability to travel for, for two years, that actually has not affected me as much as it would have if I were, you know, free and single. Um, because I, you know, it's, it's much better if you're in a family situation where you're going to be spending most of your time at home anyway. So it, it, it it's, uh, uh, I think it would, would have been much harder for, you know, if, if you're free and single and itching to travel, if you have all these, these government imposed restrictions or whatever, that would have been a, a, a much worse situation. Oh yeah. That's, that's why I said earlier that you, as, as far as your timing, and hitting this wave, you did everything uh, correctly. You traveled mm. in the in the I don't know, say '90s and 2000s or 2010s, and you had the freedom yeah. uh, in Europe and Asia, and you got it out of your system. Got all of those experiences. Yeah. Uh, if there's a 20, 21 year old now, there's no way they could travel through Europe and Asia like you did. So. Oh, absolutely, uh, absolutely. Well, I mean. That yeah, so you've got you've got the lockdowns now. You've also got you know this this immigration that I think is being used as a weapon. So I, I you know at the time that I traveled through Europe, it was a, a whole lot safer than it is now. And even you know the people that traveled in the in the in the 60s that that was actually really safe. <laughs> you know, I mean people were hitchhiking at that time, and I don't think there was a lot of hitchhiking even when I traveled in the in the early 90s. But but nowadays I I don't think that that's uh, it's, it's gotten a whole lot more dangerous. Yeah, I, I would absolutely agree. When you were in Singapore, because that's where you were until recently moving to the Philippines, I know Singapore is a very expensive place to live. But what was, now only say what you're comfortable with. I don't, I don't, I don't want to put you in a corner, make you feel uncomfortable, but what was Singapore's reaction as far as the lockdowns and vaccinations and requirements or restrictions? Were they pretty strict? Oh, yeah. I mean, um, okay, so in Singapore, so they did not actually have a mandate. So they didn't say, you must get jabbed. But what they did say is, if you want to continue working, they basically put the pressure on the employers to get 100% of their employees fully vaccinated. And fully vaccinated means you got the first shot, you got the second shot, and if there's a booster that there that is available, then you need to get the booster as well. So that it's effectively a subscription service. Um, but 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 the the ridiculousness of it is that. For for two years, I was um, working for a a bank in in, in Singapore, uh, working from home as as was everybody, um, 
you know, and, and all working from home. And then, you know, the government comes in and says, okay, well, you need to be fully vaccinated to come into the office. And then the government is putting pressure on the, the employers to make sure that their employees do come into the office. If, you know, so for example, there were a lot of people that have a, a contract that says, okay, I can come into the office one day a week and I work home four days a week, which is fine. And, and for most of the employers, they would be fine if you just want to work from home all the, the whole time. But I think the Singapore government is putting pressure on the employers to make sure that their employee, employees come into the office, not because they need to come into the office, but as a, a way to coerce people into, in, into, getting, these, um, into getting these jabs. Mm-hmm. So th- there was a, a recent note from my, uh, uh, or that I, that I saw in the internal company email, and it, it basically said that, uh, that 98% of my company employees in Singapore have been, have, have been jabbed. Um, I recently resigned and, and, you know, that was one of the, the, you know, I was asked to resign basically. And the, the reason was because of the, the, the lack of, um, my willingness to, <laughs> to, to, to take experimental gene therapy. Um, but I, I feel very confident about that decision. Okay. So any, any professional in Singapore or anyone being employed in Singapore, what are your chances of still being employed, not being vaccinated? Zero? Uh, well, well, so now, okay, th- there was a push. They, they said by January 15th, you need to be, you need to come into the office and you must be fully vaccinated in order to come into the office, right? So I think what has happened is for most of the companies that had unvaccinated employees, they uh, managed to find some way of getting rid of them. Um, and the Singapore government has said, well, if, if your employees are not fully vaccinated, you have every right to, to, to fire them basically. So most Singapore companies have, have done that. So the re- I think part of the way that they've gotten the vaccination rate up so high is they've simply fired the unvaccinated people, <laughs> you know, yeah. um, if, if you, if you, right. If you've got, uh, a uh, hundred people and, and five of them are not vaccinated. Well, if you just fire those people, then suddenly your vaccination rate goes up to hundred percent, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> so, so I think that that's the, uh, the approach that's taken. Now, what, what they've done now is they've, so that this was back in January and February. Well, now it's, uh, it's, it's coming into May. And what they've said now is that, oh, okay, well, for any unvaccinated person that you've got, they can now come back into the office. But of course, most of the unvaccinated people have been fired already. Right. So, um, I mean, if if I wanted to to look for another job in Singapore, I could probably do that. And yes, the companies could hire me. But what they may say is, okay, well, the next time there's there's another set of jabs that come. Do we really want this person? Because they've already demonstrated that they're highly resilient and and unwilling to uh, to to take these jabs. So. Do you think this was one of the primary incentives for you leaving Singapore and then locating in Philippines? Oh, absolutely. Well, there, there's a, there's a push and a pull. So the, there's several things. So, so one was the, the, you know, my continued employment was really dependent on my willingness to take the jab. That's one thing. The second thing is that the, the immigration status of my wife is a, a permanent resident. Um, and my concern is that they would say, okay, for permanent residents, they need to be jabbed in order to renew their ID card effectively. 
Um, so she, it, had I stayed, uh, my wife would have needed to get jabbed, uh, you know, no choice. The, the third thing is that they were introducing um, these jabs to children age five to 12. Um, and what I, and so what they claimed at first is, okay, well, this is all voluntary. You need to get a signed form from your parents in order to get it done. But what I've seen is that um, it, it's a very slippery slope. And if people aren't going and voluntarily getting these, uh, I could totally see that they just bust the children off, get it done when you're not looking, and then you know come back and say that they've been jabbed. So I haven't heard that that has happened yet. But the problem is, you know, if there's a breakdown of trust uh, with the, the government, um, you, you, things that you think are, you know, of course, the, the, the problem is you never know what they're going to do. You never know how, how things are going to change. And I, and I, you know, there's a social contract between, between yourself and the government. And I, I know, for example, people in Canada uh, were really shocked you know, to find out that that they could their freedom of movement for the ability to to leave Canada has been uh, has been blocked by the government. You know, so there's a social contract there. But the problem is, once the trust has been broken, uh, it's real hard to build back up. So with the with the children and the jabs, I don't want my child to get to get jabbed. Um, but I also don't trust that. If I keep them in school in, um, in in Singapore or wherever, that that they will will not be. So so we're now in a situation of, uh, you know, there, there's a there's fear because of the distrust about what are they going to do and when are they going to do it. So um, better to to take things into your own hands, I think. So your move to the Philippines is you're basically, now correct me, this is just a leading, leading question. Sure. Put it in your own words. But from my understanding, you're headed, you're located in the Philippines because you're developing a survival strategy for you and your family, your children. You want to remain organic. You don't yep. want to be forced to participate in unknown experimental gene therapy. And it's affected, you lost your job over it. You've had this uh, long career, very viable career in Asia. Now you're in a, uh, maybe a smaller rural area in the Philippines. And have you, have you strategized to where you're maybe kind of living more off the grid and, and thinking of how to protect you and your family from maybe storm winds that might be coming globally and you're taking a defensive posture or what, what that's the yeah. feeling I have. In yeah, Philippines, absolutely. But I, but I want you to yeah. clarify, I could be off on what I just said. Sure. What, sure. So, your yeah, so I, as I mentioned, there's a push and there's a pull, right? So the, the push from Singapore is this, this distrust that I have with the, with the um, government and, and and how far they're going to take it, and of course, at the uh, you you never know what 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 moves they're going to make, so you kind of have to preemptively make a move yourself to get out of harm's way. So that that was the push. The pull to the Philippines is that uh, you know I have three small children. My wife has 
parents in the Philippines, um, and they're able to help with childcare and you know the the quality time between uh, the grandparents and the uh, my my children I think is of of high value to me. Um, now, of course, within the Philippines, there's um, they have big cities, you know. So there's the there's Cebu and Manila and Davao and things, and then the, the a lot of the Philippines is, is relatively rural. Um, so as it turns out, the place that my uh, wife has family in the Philippines is about two hours outside of Manila, which is a, I, I would call it a, it's, it's not, it's not really the city, but it's not r rural either. Um, so we've stationed there initially and I've managed to find some uh, farmland um, and a, a house in a more rural area. Uh, Kind of on a on a mountain near some streams and things like that. So, the plan is to to, to move there, and then um, to set up some farmland in in the area and get to know the neighbors and you know to continue with the food uh, storage and things like that. You can see what's happening globally with um, uh, the breakdown of, of food supply, and I, I think that that's what's coming next. So we we could see the COVID, the lockdown and all that. Um, we've got the uh, WHO that's now putting in place a, a treaties, which basically will um, give, or it, it breaks the, the sovereignty of a lot of companies, a, a lot of countries down so that for the next pandemic, they will simply be able to dictate, hey, there's a pandemic. And then they'll be able to say, Here's what you need to do. You need to shut down this or that, and there will be big penalties for countries if they if they fail to implement what the WHO says. Um, and you can also see that there's uh, 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 significant. Or well, it's basically an engineered food shortage. So, you know, I, I'm feeling um, not terribly secure about the the, the future, um, and I think now is a good time to be in defensive mode stocking up on on food and you know starting a garden and and basically getting in a, a place where you can be um, uh, uh, safe for the next uh, for the next couple of years so that's that's my current plan yeah ye yesterday I did an interview of uh, v rogue rogue news I, I've been a guest on his show over the years and and I highlighted that Robert about it, it's unfortunate that with, with hyperinflation, I did some calculation over a couple of days looking at the numbers. And in the United States, for example, the cost of food is going to go up 14 fold. Well, I gave the wow. illustration that was scary. Uh, right now, the national average, if you're single, is 60 to $100 a week for groceries. Mm. Family of four. $225, $260 a week. That will change to $850 to $1,400 a week for a single individual or $3,150 to $3,500 a week for a family of four. And as he said, there is no one that can afford $3,500 a week in groceries, a family of four. So uh, a lot of starvation, social unrest, supply shortages. He'd mentioned, you mentioned this as well, but all these mysterious food factory facilities getting struck by airplanes or blowing up, catching yep. on fire. I mean, come on, what's going on here? So troubled times are coming. And 
I get accused of being chicken little, the sky's falling, but all I'm doing is presenting facts. And like you, I think plan B to the listening audience, hopefully plan B was already initiated probably two years ago when this narrative broke out with uh, Wuhan and this global pandemic. And then you mentioned this treaty that's uh, the UN is trying to shove down everyone's throat March 11th, which basically yeah. uh, puts a coffin nail in any constitution or any bill of rights. It, it supersedes that it's extremely dangerous. And the way they've arranged this, it's an amendment so they can bypass Congress, for example, in the United States. It's very sneaky how they did that. So my strategy over the couple of years and racking my brains, kind of like what you're doing, I think the only way to survive is you've got to get kind of, I use the term off the grid as fast as possible. If, if you can have access to uh, chickens with uh, eggs, which is a good source of protein, a garden, a community, if you're in a township or a village where you can barter, you know your neighbor, you can help one another, if you're not in that situation, if you're in downtown Atlanta, Dallas, Chicago, Baltimore, there's no way you're going to make it. I, I hate to say that. This is this is the the, the fact. And yep. there's the, I don't even Robert. I don't even mention one one hundredth of the data that I have and the other scientists that I talk with worldwide. I don't even mention it because yep. the listening audience couldn't handle it. They'd be jumping off a bridge. I can't handle it. I, I have not been able to sleep a solid eight hours in two years now, knowing what, unfortunately, what was and still is in these formulations. I look at the patents. I look at the, the grants back in 2011, 2012 by DARPA, the scientists who worked on these formulations, the history of these pharmaceutical companies. I know. I'm a scientist. Yeah, I've done my homework. I know these guys and gals. I've rubbed shoulders with them ever so slightly. I'm in a field where since 2004, I've specialized in technologies that work on viruses and bacteria, where they neutralize viruses and bacteria, whatever term you want to use, in the air and surfaces in one hundredth of a second through ion, plasma ions that simply break down into oxygen and water vapor. So it's extremely safe for humans, plants, or animals. Keeps the air and surfaces very clean. Helps prevent pandemics. This, this is what I do. And they have shut the technology out. They will not allow it to be uh, publicized, to be on uh, websites. It's, there is a conspiracy going on. And if you don't think so, uh, good luck. First of all, if you're of that mindset, you wouldn't be listening to this podcast anyway. That's for sure. Everyone who listens to my podcast and the Radioactive Banana, my channel on Odyssey, I got kicked off YouTube just like B did. Um, there is a very sinister, dark plan out there. And the only way that I've found to survive, and I don't want to do all the talking, I'll let you do the talking because we're past an hour now but it's self-sufficient basically how did people live in in the 1850s 1860s in the united states uh, community family bartering cooperation self-sufficiency get it out of big cities have fresh water supply 
healthy eating, exercising, not be debt ridden in their financial system. But what did I describe? Probably, what do you think? Three to 5% of the world's population fit in that category. Everyone else is, yep. you know, up to their eyeballs and mortgages and student loans and credit card payments and getting an in-ground swimming pool and this and that. And there, there's no way they're going to make it. Yeah. Yeah. What, one of the things that I've realized is that, uh, you know, I've had a successful career, but, you know, a lot of what I, or the skills that I rely upon are uh, verbal skills, writing skills, and spreadsheet skills, you know, um, whereas I, I think what's actually needed for survival at this point is the, the skill set that our, you know, our, our ancestors had and, and very practical things, you know, working with concrete, working with, with wood, uh, being able to, to grow gardens and things like that. And one of the things I'm realizing as I, I get set up, there's a whole body of knowledge that I, I was not familiar with before, and I'm needing to, to get up to speed with it really quickly and to be able to learn practical things, plumbing and, and electricity or electrical and, and all of that repair. Um, so I realize, in fact, you know, in our society, the career path that I've chosen has been very successful for the current system, but I'm actually very unprepared for what I know is coming. But at, le at least I, at least I, I know some of what I don't know and can work in the right direction, you know, to gain those skills. And, and one of the things that's really fortunate nowadays is that at least right now, while the internet is still open, we can pick up some of those skills by, by accessing YouTube or Udemy or, you know, internet, internet websites where people have collected that information. But, you know, you need to have the wisdom of knowing what you don't know and the foresight to say, hey, I better get that information now so that I'm prepared. Um, one thing that I'm doing right now is, is working out, okay, as I, I, you know, I haven't even moved into the, the new uh, house yet, but I recognize that there's going to be a whole slew of tools that I'm going to need. So, um, I just, just recently I've, I've ordered it and received a, a power generator and some solar panels and a chainsaw and, and, you know, hedge clippers and all this other stuff, because I think that the, um, supply chains are going to break down. I'd, I'd much rather spend the money that I have now on, on tools and practical things that are going to be needed in the future, because there will come a day when it'll be hard to get anything, um, that would be needed for just for survival so it's important i think to, to to get that or to anticipate what will be needed and to, to to get that now rather than uh wait for wait until later when it's it's no longer going to be available right i i did the same thing by the end of the year, last year jan the first of january first week of january okay. um the fall of 2021, I updated all my tools, got the solar generators, sewing machine, first aid kits, leather, needles, sewing material, glues, everything, because I knew the supply chains are gonna be in question and with hyperinflation increasing prices. So I we secured all of that by the first week of January and it took seven months to get it all, to order it, to have it come in. Wow. And that, even such things as uh, books on uh, canning, 
all the skills of canning yep. that 60 years ago, that's all been lost. So how, how do you can the pressure pot cooker, uh, books right. on what, uh, in my area, books on indigenous plants that you can eat that most people think were, were weeds in their yard, but they're edible. Yep. And, uh, and if it's edible, is it the root? Is it the leaf, the stem, or do you boil it? So uh, to actually find the book with colored, it's gotta be colored pictures. So you yeah. don't accidentally eat the wrong poisonous plant. That, that's something <laughs> I would do. Oops, that was poison <laughs> ivy. Hey, <laughs> I got the black and white version. But the, the, uh -oh. the books, the books aren't cheap. They're like 200 $250 to have a hard yeah. bound. Well, the internet, I'm not going to do a PDF file because what if the internet goes down? So I want the actual hardbound book and finding yeah. those. So this is telling folks, if you start now, I hope you have enough time because it's been, it took over seven months to get everything that I had mentioned. And I'm still getting a few things like the books and I'm trying to hunt them down yeah. and get them in my possession. And I know I'm running against the clock because the wheels have completely come off this global financial system. The corruption is everywhere. You and I know that in government, it's in military, it's in corporations. Yeah. Uh, the very thin veneer of civility of society will be completely gone in 27 days. When, when this hits and grocery stores are empty after three days in your convenience stores, there's no bread or milk. Uh, what I say is that the only thing that's left is the one jar of sauerkraut. <laughs> yeah. um, in 27 days, when a society doesn't have food, the Pentagon had studies, people turn cannibalistic. And the mindset is, oh, that's never going to happen in the United States. I'm like, are you kidding me? Absolutely. It's guaranteed to happen. So how do you prepare for that? And that, it, I've, I've taken the steps. It's taken years to get to this point. So if people haven't started, I don't think they have time left. Do you, Robert? If they haven't even started uh, uh, to prepare? Yeah, I, well, I, I think definitely if you're in the city, that those are the ones that are going to get hit first. You know, so, uh, so what I have figured is that cities like Hong Kong and Singapore, uh, they they don't have much capability to, to produce food themselves. And, and so one, one mindset shift is the, the truth is that on the in the world, we have the ability, the world has the ability to produce ample food for as many people as they like. So it's not that food can't be produced. What it is, is that the people that want to control things are engineering a food shortage. And that, that's a very different problem. So it's not that right. we don't have food. It's that they want to use the inability of, or the, or the inaccessibility of food as a weapon. So you need to think in, in a mindset of if, if somebody wanted to act maliciously and use control over food as a tool, and, and so for a lot of people, they 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 don't think, and and this kind of goes to the goes back to the the COVID nineteen situation, and you know what we what we learned about what's actually in these things over time, and and that it was kind of forced on people, and then we're finding out all this other materials that's in these uh, in these jabs that 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 are undisclosed and are there for nefarious purpose. Um, so you really need, and and for a lot of people, they don't even think about. Why, well, why would anybody, you know, why would anybody try to control the food? Why, you know, there's a, the idea that there's that, that there may be malicious intent involved is, is not something that, that occurs to people. So, 
you know, what we can see is that it is with malicious intent that they are intentionally causing food shortages in order to use that as a, as a matter of control. Uh, so as long as you know that that's coming, then you can uh, take uh, um, uh, take steps to to protect yourself, and that's that's the the mindset that I'm in. Um, but of course, it's likely to hit the cities first because mm -hmm. it's much it, it's not it's not that difficult to uh, to control the access points inside and out out of the city, and then use the the food that's in the city as the as the point of control, uh, which is why. You know, as I've gone to the Philippines, I've I've gone to uh, uh, to, to a, a smaller, you know, it's it's kind of a, a smaller town now, and then where I'm will be moving here in the future is really kind of out in the country. So well, you know, it's 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 getting your your situation where you're in a, a place once again out of harm's way. I'm sure it will come to the countryside in the Philippines at some point. But it, it's that's not going to be the first place that it hits. And by that time, we will have some warning because they're going to be uh, controlling the cities first. Yeah, so just you and I and others that we know that we speak on a, on a regular basis, the best we can do is buy time. If we're strategic, we can buy time. Those caught in, in metropolitan urban areas won't have the luxury of an extra six to 12 months versus those that are kind of off the grid in a rural area. And out of all human history, now is not a good time to be naive, to think that there isn't a, a group capable of engineering, manufacturing an artificial famine or creating pestilence or wanting to reduce the world's population. So if someone's in la-la land uh, denies that, it will cost them their life. So those, those that are awake. And then another issue that maybe we'll have you back on, on a part two is you and I've talked in private quite a bit, but there's also the most important is a spiritual preparation versus physical because i think physical preparation and i know you agree because we have these conversations physical preparation gets you so far but it's going to get to a point where spiritual preparedness is the key and robert what i found is when i have discussions or i try to address the spiritual side of what's going on human consciousness and and where we're headed or what happens at death or, or after death, that's when people, they turn off. I, I, I can't even get half a percent to engage in that conversation. No one wants to talk about the spiritual side of this. Any thoughts? Yep, I, I, yeah, I, I absolutely. I think, that's, I think that's true to a certain extent. I think this, this is a spiritual war in the sense of, I, you know, I find it amazing how, how, like with the COVID situation and the jabs, it, it's just blatantly obvious to me that they're up to nefarious purpose. You know, that, I mean, and there have been several red flags and it just seems so obvious. And I'm, I'm amazed that, that more of my work colleagues did not <laughs> do what I've done, which is basically to say, no, I'm not going to be taking this stuff. Uh, and then 
also anticipating what's going to happen. It's just a, a little note for the side. So I'm, I'll, I'll be leaving my, uh, my, my employment here pretty soon. Um, I'm sending out my, my notices to my colleagues. There's about 20 or so people that I, that I work with regularly and I'm, uh, you know, sending them a note to say, Hey, I've decided to, um, to move to the Philippines with my, uh, with my wife and three children. We're going to enjoy some time on a, on, on a, farm enjoying rural life for for a while you'd be amazed at how many people think wow that's amazing i would love to do that <laughs> you know i mean it's just it's just people there they they know that they're i think they feel like they're trapped and just the idea of breaking away and and doing that I, but i it's it's amazing the encouragement that i've gotten for making that decision you know there has been nobody that says oh you know, you're you're gonna you're gonna be sorry for that, or you know, you're doing a career <laughs> career break or anything like that. It's actually been very supportive. But I but these are the same people that will run off and 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 get these jabs just because they're they're told to without actually thinking about what that means. And you know, I even bring up things like food shortages to people, uh, and they're like, "What are you talking about? What's what's this? It's just just completely asleep." Yep. Yeah, it's it, it's it's amazing. It's it's almost. I I see. From my perspective, I see about three or four realities running concurrently, and I'm yep. in one reality. I've got family and neighbors in a second, a third, fourth reality, and I'm like, how how is that even possible? If if we're a human family, a human race, and we're living in real time at this current timeline uh the end of april mm. year, year 2022 how can there be four different realities in the human race because the way i see what's going on the geopolitics the advancement of sciences the nanotechnology the atmospheric salting weather control um the corruption in the global financial system, I have a view of reality and strategies that I'm trying to adopt and others don't see any of that. Not one of what I'd mentioned. They, they don't think there's any human trafficking going on or uh, organ harvesting or that there's trillions upon trillions of debt where the Federal Reserve has printed 110, 12 trillion dollars just the last six years. They're like, what are you talking about? And I'm like, how can we yeah, be on yeah. the same planet? I pinch myself. Am I going, is this a video game? And I'm in a I'm in a different video. They're they're in Pac-Man and I'm in Tron. Or what's going on? How can there be four concurrent realities? And but the one that that you and I are in, because we have a lot of similarities, we're an ex extreme minority, maybe three to 7% of the population see what we see. Everyone else is getting their coffee and they're going to aerobics and uh, watching their favorite Hollywood repeat movie. I, I don't get it. I can't figure yep. it out. Absolutely. But um, yeah, let's uh, stop here and then have a part two because in part two, what I want to do is get your thoughts because of your education and how, how you 
think with cybersecurity and you've got that engineering mind because engineers think a certain way. That's what makes you an engineer. It doesn't matter if you're a mechanical, chemical, electrical engineer. It's that mindset. But uh, there's the secret to engineering is the it's very simple. It's one plus one equals two. The, the whole is the sum of the parts. That's what a lot of engineering is about. And the same thing with sciences, actually. Yeah, exactly. It's about right. composition and decomposition. Yep. Um, the, what, I, what I found out interesting is the, the real push for transhumanism. And the technology is very advanced now where they're able to change DNA in real time they can change our DNA, a plant or an animal through nanotechnology and the telecommunication. And what, we're, what will really scare you, it's very limited right now is the role that the 7G system will play with the nanotechnology and the goal of transhumanism actually altering the human genome. And, uh, it's very disturbing. So I'll leave that kind of as a cliffhanger, but if we have a part two, that's one of the things I'd like to address and then get your view on it. Absolutely. That's a, yeah, lots, lots of interesting topics. That's a, one of the now, most relevant today. I'll warn you up front in the audience, it'll scare the bejeebies out of you. And uh, that's what I'm concerned about because for every scientist such as myself, we're very limited. We want to remain organic, natural, and we know we're in a, a spiritual warfare. We're outnumbered 30,000 to one. So I, I don't know how it's going to turn out. It's definitely a, you know, a David versus Goliath type of a situation. Absolutely. Well, uh, we thank you, Robert, for being on episode six of Ethereal Underground. And we look forward to having a part two of this discussion. Thank you so much. It's been a pleasure to, uh, to, to have this chat with you and look forward to the next one. Well, you're welcome. And everyone listening, uh, take care until episode seven.